Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. I never thought telling someone that they were not a bitch would get quite the reaction that we got this week, Sherry. There's a lot of people in the world that have a lot of reactions, so... Yep, that's true. We published a blog post this week. Well, it would have been last week when you're listening to this. Uh-huh. We published a blog post titled, Your Wife's Not a Bitch. And first of all, I want to get your reaction to my use of that word. I know you don't like that word. I don't like that word. I think that I have um, grown to be okay with it because... There are a lot of people that um, do, you know, use it often. I guess over the years we've heard that. Um, so it's a word then, that I called you sometimes when I when I was in active addiction. I yeah, I've, yeah. I'm not going to try to defend you versus other people. A lot of times you would say I was acting like a, you know. Yeah, um, I, that goes from somebody taught me about bitchy. Yeah. Somebody taught me when it comes to parenting, never to tell a child that the child is bad, tell them that their behavior is bad. Right. Their choices are. So I can't believe that when I was drinking, I had the clarity to say you're acting bitchy I mean, versus calling you a bitch. I mean, not when you would like be completely arguing and, yeah. you know, a terrible fight, but. But sometimes I did but that. sometimes you did. And, and, and I will, you know, and I guess now uh, looking back, there were times, yes, I was being a bitch or I was acting bitchy. So I can kind of own it because now I can lay the blame on alcohol's feet, not my own behavior, because it changed me, even though I wasn't the one that was consuming it a lot of times. But you just don't like that word. But like I You would like prefer that. that I choose a different word, and is it because it's a painful and stigmatized and yeah. just nasty word? Yeah. Which and is and understandable. Usually, yeah, and it's usually, you know, it's, it's obviously meant to be derogatory, but it's like just meant to cut deep. Well, I used it in the title of the piece that I wrote that we published to our Sober and Unashamed blog. And I used it intentionally, but with a great deal of trepidation because I knew you didn't like it and I knew it would get a reaction, but I used it because I knew it would get a reaction. So, you know, you I, I on rare occasion get accused of clickbait and this would be close to that, but I, but I also think it's the accurate word. So... Um, I was really nervous when we published this article to see what would happen. And we've gotten a really big reaction. One of the things about writing about stigmatized topics and very personal topics is that the reaction is, is often not public. We do almost nothing on social media because I just can't bring myself to. I try, I've tried and tried yeah. and I hate social media. We had somebody that we had contracted with that did our social media for a little while. Um, but then that kind of went away and it's just and I, not my thing. Yeah. And but I'm even, not willing to take it over because I don't like it either. Yeah. I mean. But even with no effort on social media, this got some, a little bit of social media traction and it got some, um, some negative responses. And so, but beyond that, we've just gotten a ton of emails. That's what I was trying to say. When you're talking about something that's private and um, that's not, uh, that's stigmatized and that, that people just don't talk about the reaction often isn't public 
it isn't posts to the website, it's private emails. And we've gotten a bunch, way more for this than most topics. And so it's a, it's a very personal uh, topic that affects a lot of people. Um, you know, if you as the loved one of the alcoholic try to claim that you're not a bitch, you know, as it sounds defensive, it sounds deflecting, it sounds like denial. So if the conversation is just between you and me, nobody else is listening, nobody else is reading, and you're claiming, and, and I'm offended by your, your actions and your behavior, and you're claiming that you're not that, whether we use the word bitch or another word, um, it just sounds like you're defending yourself and you're deflecting and you're, you're in denial. And it's easy for me as your spouse to say, well, of course you're going to say that. Of course you're going to reject my accusations. But, well, and, and then if you add to that my gaslighting and the insecurity that results from my gaslighting, you're going to become unsure of yourself, right? If, you, if we're having problems in our relationship and I decide that the problems are because you're a bitch or you're acting bitchy and you know, you're trying to defend yourself and deflecting away the things that I'm saying, but I just keep telling you the reasons why it's your fault you know, and I'm doing that gaslighting. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit off in my perception of reality, and I'm telling you why all this stuff is your fault. Your insecurity is gonna swell up, whether whether you believe in your heart, whether your instincts tell you that you're not being bitchy or not. Some of what I'm saying is gonna get through and make you feel insecure in your position. Correct? Um. Yes. I think that it depends on where you are and how strong you feel at that moment there are times I could definitely deflect that and be like well I've got a lost list of names for you that I'm thinking in my head right um but then there are other times where I did analyze other relationships because I would be like well maybe I am maybe I am the key component um to you know one of the things for instance to get into details that I used to really pick on you about is you have, since the day I met you, you've always had kind of a spunky, fiery temper. I've told you since we met that that's one of the things I love about you, that you don't take shit, that you... Um, that I'm easily angered and I can't hide it. And that's not something to be proud of. But it's something that I really found attractive. But when we would argue, I, I would go right there and be like, yeah. oh, this is your fault because you've got that fiery temper. And you would even say sometimes, I thought you liked that about me. Yeah. But I would say, oh no, this is this is the reason we're fighting because you can't control your temper. Yeah. And that had to create insecurity when I would gaslight you that way, wouldn't it? Because yeah. you knew you had that temper. Yeah, and then I would say, I would think to myself, well, you know, he thinks it's funny and great when it's other people, but when it's directed at him, it's not so funny, is it exactly. now? Mr. You know, I would be a little... I don't know, high on my horse, you know. Well, you're defending yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole point of this kind of introductory part of the conversation. If it's you trying to defend yourself against me, and I'm a pretty good manipulator, and I'm a pretty good gaslighter, and my view of reality is corrupted by alcohol, whether I'm actively drinking or alcohol is just part of my life, doesn't really matter. Um, if my opinion is corrupted by alcohol, I'm going to get pretty darn good at manipulating and gaslighting 
and bringing out your insecurities and you're going to become unsure of yourself regardless of how confident, strong, independent you are, you know, kind of in a natural, normal setting, in an alcoholic setting, um, I'm going to wear you down. And so trying to defend yourself, you know, there's some effectiveness to it, but you sound defensive, you sound deflected, deflecting, you sound like you're in denial. And it's easy for me as your alcoholic spouse to say, you know, this is all her fault. Mm-hmm. You're just You're just trying to defend yourself and it's ineffective. But here's the point, right? When someone else explains for you, there's some instant credibility there to it. So when we published this blog post that's all about, you know, well, it's all about the title. Your wife's not a bitch. And someone else is defending your wife to you, there is... You know, that, that's going to get a different reaction. That isn't just you trying to defend yourself against me. It, let me explain it with an example, okay? So I know you, I know it gets a little cringy when I go to one of the things that I do for a living, but it's one of the things that I do for a living that I'm in the heart of right now. And that's really chaotic right now, which is coaching high school soccer. Got it. I'm in a really difficult situation right now and um, faced a near mutiny um, among the players against me, basically, uh, very recently. And one of the players, one of the seniors, one of the lead- leaders, you know, I, so I'm explaining why we have to do it this certain way. And the players are uh, rejecting that. But one of the seniors, one of the leaders stood up and said, no, coach is right. This is how we got to do it. If we're going to succeed, we've got to follow that lead. And so here I am, a 49-year-old man that needs this 17-year-old to defend me and to speak for me and to bail me out and to hold it all together. Because he was the voice of the group that was going against you. So there was a leader amongst the group. So Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. you did need one of their own to go against the grain and try to reason with his group of people. Exactly. So when I publish an article that's titled, Your Wife's Not a Bitch, now it got a variety of reactions, <laughs> and we're going to talk about those. But but at least there's an intention there, and there's a possibility that it will get the attention of some of the alcoholic spouses, the drinkers themselves, because I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. So not only is your, quote, bitchy wife defending herself, but there's a drinker that thinks the bitchy wife is right and she's not a bitch. So that's going to get through to some people. It's it's instant credibility in some cases. Um, what I tried to explain in the article is that, you know, just for those who haven't read it, and you can find it at soberandunashamed.com, but for those who haven't read it, what I tried to explain is that alcohol changes everybody, not just the drinker. It's obvious to the whole world that someone who's drinking gets drunk and acts obnoxious and or passes out or gets quiet or gets loud or does whatever they do. It's obvious that alcohol changes the drinker. But what most people don't understand is the degree to which alcohol changes everybody that's in the close sphere of the drinker, especially the spouse. So alcohol has a massive impact on the, the, the wife. So if the wife becomes bitchy, that's not her natural state. She's reacting to what she has to deal with living with someone who has a 
you know, strong and unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And so alcohol changes that person too. I want to make a really important point that none of what I'm saying is gender specific. We talk about gender a fair bit on this podcast. There are times when I think there are gender differences personally. And I I know you and I sometimes agree and sometimes disagree that there are gender differences. In this case, I think there are no gender differences. I'm talking about the wife of an alcoholic man because that's what we encounter most often. But this everything that we're saying can apply to a situation where the wife is the drinker and the husband is the non-drinker and alcohol is going to change that husband too as the wife drinks. It applies to uh, to, to gay situations. It applies to um, gender neutral situations. It applies to everything. I don't think there is a gender component to this particular thing. I just don't know any better way to describe it than the situation that you and I are in or and the situation that most of our listeners and most of the people that we encounter are in. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And do, would you agree there's no real gender component here? I agree here? because the, the strain and the stress and the constant worry and anxiety that lives and resides within, the person that has to be the sober partner of a, um, of a drinker, you have no idea. You have no idea what you put us through. Absolutely. So it doesn't matter if you're male or female. You know, you could be called controlling and bitchy and a nag and, you know, a dick and whatever it is. Yeah, we have become all those things because of the alcohol. Yeah. Whether it's in your body right now at the time or not. Absolutely. So your emotions are on high and on high alert and... You've changed your body chemistry, your brain chemistry. That has changed. You have to tolerate and anticipate every situation that you have zero control over. You know, the embarrassment that lies within. You're worried about being in public with this person, and this is a person you chose to be with. And for the same token of the drinker, you chose to be with this person. They didn't start out that way. And I'm not going to say that you've made them that way. The alcohol has made them that way. So when people are becoming defensive and argumentative and acting like there has to be some, you know, bit of blame and ownership that their loved one has to take on the responsibility for, fuck that. Put it all on the alcohol. Not saying that you can't say you're sorry for being, you know, mean to your spouse during an argument, but they're not to blame. The drinker isn't to blame. If they refuse to get help and refuse to see, then then you're just beating your head against the wall. So you do become a bitch. You do become detached. You do become unloving. You do become unkind. So in any situation, in any situation, the loved one is feeling stress. And it's going to be the outlet for the frustration and anger and shame and embarrassment that the drinker just doesn't want to admit to. So I call bullshit on anybody that says that my partner had a role in their reactions and their attitude and their treatment of me. I call bullshit on that because it's the alcohol. And anyone who has posted comments, they just don't want to see it because they don't want to believe that... Alcohol completely changes the dynamic of the relationship, the personality, the brain chemistry, 
of both parties. Very well said. That's exactly what I was trying to explain in the article, that the alcohol changes everybody. It changes the drinker, it changes the spouse, and as a drinker myself, I hoped that that would lend credibility to the argument that I recognize now in sobriety, now in extended sobriety, that the alcohol had as, as large an impact on you as it did on me. I feel it's weird that I'm so passionate about this, but I just think, well, God, isn't it so easy to say it's not the person, it's not the human, it's the poison. It just seems so easy. I refused for a long time to believe that alcohol changed me. I refused to blame the alcohol because I would be like, Matt, you're the one that's choosing to buy the beer. You're the one that's choosing to, you know, pour it down your gullet. But there was so much I didn't understand. Yeah. And and where we are now, it's just hard to imagine, like, why you wouldn't want to do that. Why that doesn't... even if Why you're you wouldn't spout, want to blame the yeah, alcohol. Yeah, and if, you're, if you are three years into sobriety, but you still act like your partner has some bit of blame in this, how is that even fair? Well, you're stuck. And we're going to talk about that. But you're stuck if that's what... If you, if you think three years into sobriety that your spouse, who was not the drinker, was not the problematic drinker, still needs to own some of the problem, you're just stuck. Yeah, I and, mean, and, and maybe you and the, transfer the way, your addiction, and maybe you're really not sober. I get all of that. I just think, God, well, this seems that's so... Well, that's important. Don't don't fly over that point. Well, I'm just saying... Maybe you seems... transferred it to video games. Maybe you transferred it to shopping. Maybe you transferred it to porn. But just because you're not ranting around the house and then passing out in front of the kids doesn't mean you're you're getting healthy. Yeah. You might just... be You might not be drinking, but... You're not in recovery necessarily if you've transferred. I mean, Sorry, it just seems ahead. so elementary not to say, okay, I'm going to blame the alcohol. Okay. It, it seems so elementary to you and me because we're as deep in it as we are. But I know from the perspective of the drinker, sometimes it's extremely hard because the people that we encounter and spend our time with, these are what we call high-functioning alcoholics. And I'm not trying to draw some status line and say these are people are better. That's not what I'm saying at all. They have a different set of challenges. And one of the challenges is they've been raised and, and they've been taught and it's ingrained in them to take accountability. Yeah. And so if you're taught to take accountability, it's really hard to blame a substance for the dysfunction. You want to blame yourself. I'm the one who bought the alcohol. I'm the one that put it to my mouth. I'm the one that got myself in this trouble. And so you can't get out of the shame cycle. And so while you're in the shame cycle, you want to point out, oh, and by the way, you, my spouse, here's your side of the street problems. You also did X and Y and Z. You were also intolerant. You also were unsupportive when I was in early sobriety. You also nagged me a lot. Because while you're taking accountability, you want to assign the blame for all the problems somewhere. And you take as much of that as you can, but some of it's got to go elsewhere, which is why the point that you so passionately made is so important. You gotta blame the substance. You gotta blame the substance. <coughs> well, and I if will... somebody forced you to smoke three packs a day and you got lung cancer, we'd blame the person who forced you to smoke and we'd blame the cigarettes. Yeah. Right? And it took me a while to get there to be blaming the alcohol for my chain. I would still try to have, you know, cause you had 10 years of attempted sobriety and relapses. 
and I would try to take some ownership and some blame and faults as to try to make it easier on you. And that's why I just want to like shake people and say, don't wait that long. Don't do this for, I mean, and, and into your early sobriety. Like I would try to say, maybe I'm the one that drove you to drink or whatever. You know, when I was feeling bad about myself, I just want to shake them and say, it's so, it, it's so easy. I know you want to take that accountability because we have that within yeah. us. Yeah. I mean, uh, being accountable, that is an admirable trait. Which is why recovery is so complex and why there's 15 million alcoholics in this country. And it's so hard to get sober and so hard to find recovery because accountability is a good thing. And we're sitting here telling you, don't be so accountable for your alcohol consumption. Back to what I was saying about the cigarettes. If somebody forced you to smoke, I said, nobody's forcing anyone to smoke. Nobody's forcing anyone to drink. But society all but forces us. Mm -hmm. When you're young and you go to college and your family was full of drinkers and then you go to college and everyone's drinking like it's their job. Uh, okay, nobody's forcing you. But they're all but forcing you. And it's pleasurable too. And, you know, it's a progressive disease. It doesn't start off in turmoil. Although for me, I had some early red flags that I ignored for sure. My behavior when I was drinking. But, but okay, so you're not being forced to drink. But you're almost being forced to drink. And that accountability piece is where people just get locked up. I mean, stuck like... They've got cement for shoes. And it's really unfortunate. Lots of people, lots of spouses of alcoholics shared the post that we sent out um, titled, Your Wife's Not a Bitch, with their husbands, with their partners, but let's say husbands because it mostly was. Um, the reactions they received, which again, we received a lot of emails explaining the situation, I thought were interesting. Multiple people got gaslit about the article. And what I mean by that is multiple um, wives sent the article to their husband and got a, you know, by email and got a reply back by email. Oh, I read that a few weeks ago. They sent it on the day it was published, you know, so impossible to have read it a few weeks ago. Yeah, you're like, uh, note the date of publication when you looked at the article. (laughs) I got that email so many times. It shocked me. So... Not only are you a gaslighter, you're, a you're not liar. very good at it. You're just a liar. You can't read the top line. I mean, the, the byline has the publication date. <laughs> yeah. That's that's just fascinating to me. But so multiple husbands said, oh, yeah, I already read that. Um, another really common reaction we heard about was defensive superiority is the way one of the, one of the people who responded uh, described it. So basically... The wife, the spouse, is saying, hey, here's an article I think might help you. It might help you wrap your arms around a different way of looking at this problem that you're fighting. But the reader, the receiver of that email, the drinker, who is, you know, in early sobriety trying to figure it all out, um, basically said, here's you pointing out a fault of mine again. We in early sobriety are in a really weak spot from a self-esteem standpoint. So this is how I would have reacted too. If you had sent me this article and I was already feeling like shit about myself, I would have said, oh, here's Sherry pointing out again, you know, something I've done wrong. And so we're like a wounded animal backed into a corner. How does a wounded animal backed into a corner react, right? Our claws come out. You're pointing out something wrong with me. I'm going to point out some things wrong with you. So we had... Tit for tat. 
we had a bunch of people email us and say, I sent this article to my husband and his reaction was to tell me all the things that I've done wrong and to tell me how I'm not supportive and to tell me how hard I'm making his recovery because... So, so I mean, it's mind-boggling when you're as far along as you and I are, but I can still put myself back in that position and I can relate. Your, your spouse is sending you something to help you and help you change your mindset and you're saying, that insults me. Uh, I'm hurting. You're not being supportive of me. So the thing you're doing, I, I hope this is not too convoluted an explanation. Let's put it in terms of you and me, Sherry. Sherry, you email me an article to help me wrap my mind around something. The article is written by another alcoholic, so someone that I should be able to relate to. Mm-hmm. And I take that as an insult, and I decide you're not being supportive of my recovery. So the very thing you're trying to do, support my recovery, I react with, you're not being supportive of my recovery. And also you think that I'm being defensive and trying to protect Absolutely. myself. Absolutely. Because my, I'm being selfish and protecting myself and proving that I'm not a bitch is, you know. So what I'm going to do is not only am I going to tell you you're not supportive, I'm going to tell you three other things that you have done wrong and three other things that you have done that make the relationship unhealthy and dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. So that was a, you know, I, I don't know why I didn't see it coming. As we explain it, it's pretty obvious to me and it's the way I would have reacted. So I get it. But I didn't anticipate that that was kind of the flow of communication that would take place. I think one of the big problems, one of the reasons that happens is we alcoholics in sobriety or those of us even that are working on our recovery, we sometimes, especially the ones that are not working particularly hard on recovery and are just sober, okay? We often mistake progress for perfection. So... What I mean by that is, you know, going back to a catchphrase that I used a lot and that we've written about and talked about, I'm sober, Sherry. What more do you want from me? Mm-hmm. We mistake the fact that I'm no longer ingesting this liquid for perfection. There, you know, do the old uh, wiping my hands clean of the situation. I'm sober, so everything's great. Um, so I'm perfect. So don't point, don't send me an article pointing out that my mindset might be wrong. I'm over the hump. It's over. I don't drink anymore. And I think that's one of the reasons that we become defensive. Now listen, make no mistake about it. Becoming sober is a gargantuan task. It's really, 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 really hard. But becoming sober and having emotional and mental growth and becoming healthy, those are two different things. So often we get sober and we want to meddle. And an award. And again, I'm not trying to downplay the accomplishment. It's a big deal to get sober. But it doesn't mean it's over. Yeah. So I need to be open-minded enough to continue to receive feedback about where I need to go next. That needs to be okay. Whether it's feedback directly from my spouse or, or a resource that's also pointing out, hey, this will help the relationship get better if you can reach this next level. Right. Because to me, that does seem like you are being supportive because you're still engaged. You're just not detached. You're just not shut off. You're just not unloving and uncaring. You're trying to mend the relationship, which is very, very difficult to do. Um, you know, the amount of people that actually stay together is shockingly low. Um, so, you know, instead of being defensive about it, like... Think of it as you're 
you know, we're just trying to take interest in making their relationship better and hoping that you look at me with different set of lenses now. Because at one point, you liked me, and then you stopped liking me, and now you still don't like me, and maybe it's, you know, this is a reason why, because you've just, your mindset has changed about who I am as the spouse and non-drinker. Yeah. So, and yeah. if you look at it like, this is loving, this is engaging, this is trying to mend some relationship issues that we have. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, you know, from our point of view, it's a very loving act. And from the standpoint of recovery, not just sobriety, but recovery, full, we've talked a lot about how the loved one also needs recovery. It's not just the drinker that needs recovery. The loved one needs it too. Um, for your perspective to be acknowledged, that helps you with your recovery. Yeah. For your perspective to be continually rejected, that means you're going to have to go elsewhere to find reassurance and to help you do your resentment processing. Resentment processing can be done in a variety of ways. The preferred method, if the relationship is to survive, is that the person, the spouse, can express themselves to the alcoholic in recovery and the alcoholic can handle it mm -hmm. and can have an adult conversation and can deal with that resentment and acknowledge that it's the truth. So every time you, you try to communicate something with me and I reject it and tell you, look at your side of the street, your side of the street's got a mess on it. Don't talk to me about my side of the street. All I'm doing is making your recovery harder and then you've got to go find a different outlet for that kind of processing, whether that be a therapist or a recovery group or a best friend or your mom or whatever. You got to go find that somewhere else because yeah. I'm not capable. And it certainly isn't helping the trust rebuilding. No. You know, because why would I trust you with anything now? Again, here we are. You're an untrusting, unsafe place. That's right. And I want to emphasize before we move on that I was that way 100%. Look what I accomplished. Look at my sobriety. I took care of my business. When are you going to take care of yours? And so I don't want to come at this from some high and mighty pillar where I say, you know, this isn't how I behave. This is absolutely how I behaved. But the reason we talk so openly and vulnerably is because we want to help other people who are behaving this way recognize that you're not at the finish line. You got a ways to go. You and I aren't at the finish line. I don't know where the finish line is. I don't know if there is a finish line. Maybe there's not a finish line. There probably isn't a finish line. <laughs> and this is what I... <laughs> this, is, this is why I work out of the house so much now. <laughs> um, yes. So I want to talk about the fear for the spouses. The word fear is going to be in the title of this episode. I'm not sure exactly what the title is yet. Um, but the word fear is important, so it's got to be in there. Fear or afraid. Um, in the feedback that we got on the article that was published, Your Wife's Not a Bitch, the predominant emotion that was expressed by the spouses was, I am afraid. And there were a, a, a variety of things. I am afraid of rejection. 
I am afraid that if I send this article to my husband who desperately needs to read it, he's going to reject it and it's going to cause a fight. So I'm not talking about physical fear. I'm not talking about, you know, I want to be, I think, pretty clear there. I didn't receive any emails that made it sound like someone was afraid that their husband was going to put on his wife beater and go to town. I didn't get anything like that. But I am afraid that I'm going to send this to my husband and he's going to reject it. Or I sent this article to my husband and he rejected it. And the kind of fear that that instills. Some of the people who shared with us talked about, I'm going to get the silent treatment. My husband's going to read that article and he's not going to talk to me for two weeks. Which anyone who's listened to this podcast knows I am not capable of the silent treatment. So <laughs> That would have, like I used to that say, that would blessing. be a blessing for a little bit. But then, but then you know, then that's just a whole other bag of crap that you it have is. to go with. It's one that we are not personally, we don't have personal experience with, but we've, but heard. we've heard enough yeah. about it that we have a lot that of respect is, for it's it. It's an emotional abuse, a form of emotional abuse as well. Absolutely. Neglect, so. Absolutely. So, so fear for the spouses, rejection, silent treatment, accused of not being supportive. That's one we heard a lot this week. You know, I here again, I send this thing, trying to be helpful, and what I get back is... You're not supportive of my sobriety. So the fear is real. And one of the things that we've learned, Sherry, is that healthy, healthy relationship as well as healthy individual, me healthy, you healthy, healthy requires honesty. And when honesty is rejected, it just stifles growth. You are just stuck. And I think a lot of people who are in sobriety... A lot of spouses who are in recovery get stuck somewhere along the way. And it often, almost always, certainly it falls into the category of being a universalism. It, it re, um, results from bad communication. It has to do with communication, this getting stuck in your recovery. And so this is an excellent example of that. Honesty comes out. We share our opinion on a topic. It really, really resonates with a bunch of the spouses of alcoholics. And those spouses, in an effort to be honest with their alcoholic in recovery, share it, communicate it, say, here, I just want you to read this. Maybe we can have a conversation about it afterwards. And the they get rejected for trying to go to an honest place and I mean again cement shoes you're not going anywhere now you are absolutely stuck when you reject you don't have to, I'm not saying you got to agree with everything I write either you can you can completely you can disagree with what I wrote but still have an intelligent um you know emotionally safe conversation and say in fact I got a text yesterday from somebody who said hey I would like to talk to you about that article. Um, I agree with some of it. Um, I get the point you're trying to make, but I've got some stuff I want to talk about. To me, that is a mature you know, reaction. And I, I'm, we're scheduling that conversation and I look forward to having it with, the, with this person who texted me. So there are ways to handle it that, you know, again, is emotionally safe, seems mature, seems re responsible to me versus... 
you know, I read that two weeks ago when it wasn't published two weeks ago, or, you know, you're not supportive of me, but for sending this. Does that make sense? Does the distinction make sense? Yeah. I mean, they, you know, there should, hopefully you would want that it is a conversation that you read the article and you share your insights, you make notes and you talk about it. And hopefully instead of just shutting it down and saying you're not supportive or even just asking the question, can you explain to me what your thought process was behind sending this? Because I don't understand. I'm feeling like it's not supportive, but that's something that alcoholics don't have or people in early recovery. They don't have that emotional maturity to be able to, to do anything but be defensive, be defensive or shut down in a lot of cases. So, yeah. And, and again, so that we hopefully remain relatable to our audience. I am very guilty of this. And I'm not just guilty of this back when I was a drinker or in my first year of sobriety. I'm guilty of this stifling of communication, rejection of communication during the run of this podcast. I'm guilty of this in conversations that we have had in front of this microphone. And I want to own that. And I that's why... Again, I think there's no finish line and growth continues because I can see now things that I did earlier during this podcast that, um, you know, weren't helpful, weren't helpful or helpful. And so I, I thought about it and I've got a couple of examples of times when you were painfully honest with me. And that's that's part of your nature. That's one of the cool things. Not only are you a spitfire and kind of short tempered, but you're also really really honest and it's really really cool to be married to someone who is so honest like you can't you can't lie to me even if it's to spare my feelings that's really pretty cool yeah well it's one of those it has caused us problems that's right that's right but one of so one of the areas is uh you know you've talked very openly and honestly about your lack of attraction for me We've talked about physical aspects of attraction. We've talked about emotional aspects of attraction. Um, I think things have gotten better in that area, but that was hard for me to hear, and I didn't handle it particularly well um, on a number of occasions, and I didn't handle it well in our personal conversations, and I didn't handle it necessarily even on some recorded conversations. Um, I rejected what you were saying because it hurt. It's okay that you have hurt. I mean, that's totally fine. It's just the way you handle it, you know, and deal with it. And not snap or not shut down. Communicate and talk about it. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Um, Another area that that came to mind when I was thinking about how your honesty has caused me to have a a bad communication-wise reaction um, that I hopefully I think I'm getting better at, but you've talked about how you can't trust my reaction, even well into sobriety. You know, whether the one that we've talked the most about are financial matters. If, if, you know, if you spend... A little bit of extra at the grocery store. I don't think you're worried about that. But if if one of the kids all of a sudden needs braces and it's five grand, yeah, 
that um, dropping that kind of bomb. You know, when I was a drinker, I would react terribly to that. Um, in sobriety, I feel certainly in long term sobriety, I feel like I've I react pretty well to that. But that doesn't mean that your fear of what my reaction might be is immediately cleared up because you've got years of bad reactions that you're still processing. Yeah. And so when you have shared with me that it's hard for you to, um, to, to share certain information with me, that has been offensive to me because I'm like, you know, what, again, what more do you want from me? I've, I've handled bad news well three times now. And you're like, yeah, what about the 250 times yeah. when you flew off the handle? Well, I hate to, like, quote the Dr. Phil thing from, like, years and years ago, but it was like, you know, there's got to be, like, 10 attaboys to, like, one, you know, negative comment. So it's, like, tenfold. Yeah. You know, there has to be you need ten good so examples. many more good examples yeah. and good experiences to erase one negative. Yeah. So. Yeah, so you can't trust my reaction is another example of where um, I haven't necessarily handled my stuff very well. Uh, and I'm guilty of the kind of bad communication and rejecting what you have to say that stifles growth in relationships and keeps people stuck. And I'm guilty of it while we've been recording this, not this episode, but <laughs> <laughs> but this podcast overall. So it's not, uh, you know, it's again, I don't know. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I listen to people or I read people and they don't sound like they got any skin in the game, I'm like, whatever, you blowhard, shut up. And I know I, I know people think I'm a blowhard, but so I try to relate. I try to say, here are the areas where I'm doing the exact same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's only recently where I felt more comfortable, but you had to change your attitude when I'd be like, oh, you know. You understand that our oldest son is going to need to get his wisdom teeth pulled over the winter break from college. Yeah. <laughs> FYI, that's the truth. <laughs> so there you go. I'm planting a seed. Yeah, and we've had enough seed, wisdom <laughs> teeth to know that's not cheap either. Yeah. We really so, need to find a career with insurance. Like, this sucks, man. <laughs> but, I mean, you've, you had to change your reaction, and I also had to be a little bit more receptive of, like, he might have a bad reaction to this, but I'm also going to not play into that because this is just life. Yeah. This hap This happens. We sent, you know, a kid to go get his own tennis shoes while he was with a friend. And normally mom would have been like, where's the cheapest tennis shoes, you know? <laughs> but he's with a friend. He's 15 and a half. He didn't want to buy the cheapest. He wanted to buy ones he liked. And we were like, well, you certainly bought what you liked. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Matt, can you Venmo, you know, our son? Some money to pay him back for the shoes. Seems like that might have been a bill we had split. You know, we pay the base and he pays the fashion. Another, but uh, We did do that for another thing, which which happens because that's what, you know, we have to learn about budgeting. We have to talk with him about budgeting. And, and <laughs> He got paid in cash and that was a bad move. Although, you and I in our 20s when we bartended, we got paid in cash I and never that had was a bad idea. Bank no, I never, I never had any money in my pocket after the day after I worked and I went back and drank all the money that I got paid the night before. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I also, but, but I had had enough experiences and I feel confident enough in our relationship overall. I feel, feel confident enough in myself and my reaction that I can say, okay, he might take this badly. 
I'm going to have to be okay with maybe a bad reaction, but it's not going to be long lasting because there isn't emotional baggage weighing us down and keeping us stuck where it's going to continue to be a fight. And that's where the growth is for us that you can have a bad reaction and I can handle it. So I have more bandwidth now too. And I can also have fewer bad reactions. And yes, and you we have a lot both, fewer we can bad both reactions. Get better. The, the, this that's is the goal. Yeah. And yeah. that's what the article was hoping to to inspire, I think, was a conversation and a and a reaction and a just a little twist of a mindset and having someone else say it for you who'd been in your shoes to say, Wow, you know, alcohol changes us in so many unbelievable ways that we have and we have to remember who we loved and fell in love with and who we started our lives with because she wasn't a bitch and you weren't a dick so absolutely could not agree more it's important for us to remember that there are three recoveries taking place there's my individual recovery there's your individual recovery and then there's the relationship and when it comes to the relationship when communication dies or communication suffers, it absolutely kills the relationship. There's nothing more important to relationship recovery than communication. And so if I reject what you're trying to communicate to me, we're stuck. If, if you can't feel safe enough to express yourself to me, we're stuck. Relationship's dead. So... We have to create an environment where we both feel safe. I don't feel like I'm under attack because you send me an article and you don't feel like you, everything that you send me is going to be rejected. So that, that's, the, that's the key. to. I mean, we talk with people all the time that are like, you know, they're so early on in sobriety or maybe they're not even in sobriety and they're like, well, we're going to marriage counseling and you and I aren't therapists or psychologists. We're not experts, but we've just seen case after case where that's just wasted money. If you haven't worked on yourselves enough that you can come into the relationship portion accepting of communication, accepting of feedback without rejecting it, without it being an unsafe space for communication, then you know, you're wasting time and money on, uh, on trying to make that better. Communication is absolutely the key. So, you know, we talk to people a lot that They'll describe their marriage counseling sessions as, you know, oh, I got to totally vent and unload. And because there was a neutral party, my spouse couldn't respond. But in the car on the way home, they fired back everything that they wanted to say. Like, that, does that not sound like an awful dysfunctional situation? Regardless of alcohol, just who would want to go through that? Yeah. So if that's the situation you're in, we, you each need, and I think, in my opinion more individual work before you try to fix the relationship because again when communication dies it kills the relationship well I know that I'm also pretty guilty and I think you because you had tried sobriety for 10 years and failed with relapse before this last time um are you calling me a failure you yeah you were a failure <laughs> um that was just but, an example of how I might have reacted negatively I'm sorry talking. you're trying to make a you're point fine go ahead you're gonna erase my point um, oh, so in your early sobriety for this last time, I was done. I was sick of it. Blah, blah, blah. I didn't want to hear what you had to say. I rejected things you shared with me most of the time. And 
I could be the alcoholic partner in this situation. If I was, if you were sending me an article about, because it took me a while to say blame the alcohol. Yep. I was stubborn about that. I was stubborn about a lot of things. What I learned to do was I, some in the, sometimes I would get fired up with what you brought to me. And I'd be defensive about it. Uh-huh. But then I'd think about it. And I'd ponder on it a little bit. And maybe reread it. And then I would come around. So maybe the initial reaction isn't to fire back and reject the article, this article that you've been sent as the alcoholic, but just say, let me read it, let me think about it, let's talk about it, you know, in a week or so. I know that seems like a long time, but for some of us stubborn, thick-headed people, it takes a while to sink in, and I hate it when you're right. But you've been right a lot of times, and, you know, I know that it was me being defensive and trying to prove that I can do this on my own without your help or I didn't need your help. So maybe would that be a mindset that the alcoholic might be thinking too is not that it's so much unsupportive, but you haven't been supportive of me and I can do this on my own. I don't need your help. Well, on behalf of the alcoholic, I want to react to the concept of hearing something, putting it aside, maybe processing it, going back to it, reading it again, that's something that I was terrible at as an alcoholic or in early sobriety because... Impulsiveness one. Yeah, I just didn't have the emotional bandwidth to, to have that level of patience. Patience wasn't in my toolbox. If I, if I needed patience, I just drank instead and it made the problem go away. So one of the things that's been really interesting in our relationship is you have even said outwardly, Matt, I'm going to run this by you and I'm going to plant the seed and you're going to hate it, but I just want you to do me the courtesy of thinking about it again down the road, or I'll bring it up again down the road. And eventually, and you know the situations where you can plant the seed and then eventually I'm going to come around to sometimes being arrogant enough to pretend like it was my idea down the road. (laughs) You know that that's happened multiple times. So that's the part of what you said that I think is really interesting. It's important to to take it in. So so like for instance with this case with this article your wife's not a bitch. You send that to me and rather than I me reacting to it let me sit on it. Let me sit on it for a few days. Maybe let me put it away for a few days. Maybe a few days from now I'm going to read it again. Maybe my lenses will be clearer. I have to do that as a writer. If I want to write something and I really want to polish it, I have to write it and then I have to go away from it for a few days so that when I'm re so that when I pick it back up and I read it, it's fresh, new information. If I try to polish it while I'm writing it, it doesn't work because I'm in it. I have to go away from it so that when I'm reading it, I have to remember what I wrote. And then, because then things will stand out to me and I'll be like, oh, that's not clear because I'm reading it for the first time. Yeah. Even though I was the one that wrote it, but it was days ago and I don't remember what the hell I wrote and my opinion changes so much that, so that stepping away, that part of what you said is really hard for alcoholics. It's also really important. Is it something that's somewhat doable in early sobriety? I mean, early sobriety, one or of the maybe main... a year after sobriety? I mean, yeah. is that something that's... I mean, one of the main growth on... components of early recovery is emotional maturity. Mm-hmm. And one of the emotions is patience. I, I guess you could call that an attribute instead of an emotion, but to me it's an emotion. So learning to be patient is something we're terrible at, and we have to become better at it. 
And a great way to do that is to not react to everything that we're told, but to sit on it for a while and come back to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's tough. That's a tough thing to do in, in the first year, but it's, it's an important goal to have for sure. You know, a real kind of epiphany light bulb moment for me that it didn't happen as a light switch switching on. It happened gradually over time. But an epiphany nonetheless is for me to have learned that your honesty is to my benefit. The less poison you hold inside of yourself, the less toxic our relationship is going to be. So when when you can be honest without fear of my rejection, when we create a communication environment that's not toxic and that is safe for you, that's to my benefit. Forget about whether it's to your benefit or not. I mean, we know that it's to your benefit. But if I want to be a selfish prick, I can still look at it and say, hey, when I make communication safe for Sherry, that's to my benefit because going back to the title of that post, my wife's not a bitch. Alcohol made her that way. And if I continue to reject her communication, I'm keeping her stuck that way. So it is to my benefit to create a safe environment for you to express yourself and be honest. Because when you get the toxin out, you're less bitchy. And guess what? I'd rather live with someone who is less bitchy. So as an alcoholic, I can be completely selfish and still say everything that we've said so far applies. For me personally, forget about you. The less toxic you are, the better my life is. So I'm going to listen and create a space for you to talk and, uh, and be that way. You're not a bitch, Sherry. You're just a little bit ornery, and I love you for it. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.